Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. All right. Would you, as a favor to other people here, um, make sure that your cell phone is off? And um, Lauren Cross and Joshua Rodgear are, are in the back. They're the ones who deserve thanks for making sure that you pajama people out there, some of you who ought to be here, you know who you are, um, get to see this. And, and thanks for the generosity of, of people who make it possible for the technology stuff to work. Anyway, Lauren and Joshua are going to be circulating. Uh, if you have a question about today, um, and you will, write it down on a card. They have cards and pens in the back that they can give you. They're around. Uh, I got one the last time I turned handy cards out that somebody said, I don't, this is not, uh, not written here, but I remember it because it was so painful. It said, I don't understand your teaching. You never give anybody any chance to ask any questions. I don't think it's a very effective way to teach. And besides, you hog the covers at night. So, um, she said that. So, anyway. So, let's begin in silence, as is our custom, just do what's required of you to get in the room and be here. This is not the real world. I was saying to somebody earlier, this is a bubble. It's a great bubble, and I'm glad we have it. But just be here, be present, and be open. Be awake. <clears throat> May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be at our ends and at our departing. So uh, in this current series, which I'm calling Love Letters to Modern Mystics, we're seeking to walk a, walk a path with a growing understanding, evolving understanding and relationship to what we call God in one hand, a growing understanding and evolving relationship to what we call the self and the other, and walk a path into more awareness that is illuminated by the life and teachings of Jesus. That's our goal. I'm going to keep probably saying that at the beginning because I don't want you to lose sight in uh, my focusing on one or the other before we get to the Jesus stuff of losing that that's where we're going. And so consequently, I'm hoping that this time, every time that we meet, contributes to uh, a deeper awareness and understanding of who you are, a deeper understanding and awareness of who sacred mystery is, and strengthens our commitment to teach each other as if they were us because they are. Okay, so um, I want you to know that <clears throat> your car has turn signals. <laughs> and if you have not learned yet how to use them, you're welcome here. And even if you are one of those people who stop in the middle of a street to read and respond to a text, you're welcome here. You got some work to do, but you're welcome here. So we take our guidance from Jesus, who as far as I can tell, excluded no one except those who thought they knew who needed to be excluded. So no matter who you are or where you are on your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. So the title that I gave a talk, uh, the last time I talked in here, was that God gets a makeover. And to put that talk in a couple of sentences, I said that God is not a white male figure that lives off there in space somewhere. 
um, who from time to time takes a stick and stirs up stuff on the earth. Rather, God is a living, loving presence right here, right now, paradoxically both within us and among us. And further, though I said that it is tempting to limit our depiction and understanding of God to the human species, that's just another indication of our narcissism. All right, because God is not limited to the human species, but God is to be found in everything that is and in all who are. God is the animating energy, animating energy behind all of that. And to that end, I quoted a vision by Elizabeth Johnson. I read this. A flourishing humanity, this is a vision. A flourishing humanity on a thriving planet rich in species in an evolving universe, altogether filled with the glory of God. Such is the vision that must guide us at this critical time of Earth's distress to practical and critical effect. Ignoring this view keeps people of faith and their churches locked in irrelevance while a terrible drama of life and death is being played out in the real world. And as I said, this is a vision. Elizabeth Johnson is a feminist theologian uh, in the Roman Catholic tradition. She is a distinguished professor at Fordham University. And I can paraphrase this vision in three words. It's one you've heard. God is love. And it is my belief that likely all of us in the Western world have inherited a belief, not only that says that God's a male deity in the sky, out there somewhere, but I think most people might say, if asked to define God or say something about God, they would say God is love. Because that's in the Western religious DNA as well. Whether we believe that, whether we trust that is another matter. Another fact about God is um, that's part of our inherited religiosity is that God is all-powerful. And the word for this is omnipotence. Seminaries have courses called systematic theology where we study God and God's characteristics. And the, in addition to saying that God is omnipotent, we spent entire semester on the characteristics of God. Looking back on this now, it is almost laughable to think that we thought that we could figure out God to the point that we could even systematize God. But we were confident about that. Now, we're talking about the one God of the monotheistic religions, the God of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And we were told that this God had four basic characteristics. God was or is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. And God is omnibenevolent, in addition to being omnipotent. God is these things. So that means that God is all-knowing. God is everywhere and that God is all-loving. Now, the contortions that theologians, both amateur and professional, go through to make all these things true at the same time is stunning. Two of the things that I learned in the church of my youth, and there were more than two, and by the way, I am very, very grateful for that church of my youth. It taught me a lot, surrounded me with a lot of loving people who were just as limited in their own way as we are in ours. But two of the things that I learned in that church were what I call the mystery card and the wait until you're older ploy. <clears throat> for example, I would say that I didn't believe that God is all powerful. And um, for example, God cannot make a rock that's so heavy that God can't pick it up. God can't make two plus two equal five. God can't lie. And um, 
So when I would put this forward in my smart-ass way, um, I was told, well, there's simply some things you just don't understand. This is um, the, mystery the mystery ploy, the mystery card. And when I would point out that there were some things that my church was blind to or prejudiced about, for example, when it came to matters of race, I was told, you'll understand it when you get older. This is the weight, and it will become clearer to you ploy. So as I got older, I began to see more and more people walk away from or become embittered by the teachings of an all-powerful, all-loving God. I've seen people walk away from the religious path because of this more than perhaps any other single thing. The other thing is that when people get in where they're working for the church and they see how the sausage is made, then they'll leave also because people who work for the church are no better or worse sometimes than anybody else. But we idealize our clergy types and think that they ought to be better. So a beautiful young child is struck down, six years old, leukemia, or by a drunk driver. And parents will wail, why could a loving God do something like this to my child? And I've seen tons of out-and-out -out religious abuse occur because people have held on to the notion of an all-powerful and an all-loving God at the same time. Some ignorant but well-meaning pastor or family member would attempt to console grieving parents by saying, God needed your child more in heaven than God than you needed your child here on earth. That's barbaric. That's abuse. That is religious abuse. Or, this is all part of a plan we can't see now. That's the mystery card and the wait-and-see ploy combined all at once. So I'm calling this talk today, Healing, Harm, and Hurt. How do we make sense of the tragedy and suffering that occur in the world or in our individual lives if God is all-powerful and God is all-loving at the same time? Now, since I wrote this talk, I've had a couple of thoughts that aren't in here, and I just want to purge them out of the way. Um, one is that if you are in the process right this moment of actively grieving, what I'm going to say today is probably not going to be effective for you. I'm reminded of what um, Kathleen Singh says in her wonderful book, Grace in the Art of Dying. She says, you're, if you're in the active process of dying, don't read this book. So uh, don't get up and leave, but maybe you'll want to come and revisit these words later, okay? Another thing that I didn't mention in, in the talk today, and that's one of the reasons I thought to hand the cards out if you wanted them, is I'm not going to talk about karma, how we ourselves participate in creating the circumstances of a lot of the suffering that we go through, right? If you drink and drive drunk and have a wreck, that's not God's fault. If you smoke three packs of cigarettes a day and get lung cancer, this is not the doing of a loving God in heaven getting even with you. So those are two things that I didn't take into consideration. Now, if you have not had a major heartbreak or a heartbreak situation in your life, just wait. You will. I'm currently reading Jim Finley. I love Jim Finley's new memoir, of uh, his time in the monastery with uh, Thomas Merton. And Finley says that when he was in the monastery where Merton was his spiritual advisor, he would go to see Merton once a week for his period of spiritual direction. And Merton would say, well, uh, Father Finbar, that was Finley's name in the monastery, how's it going? And, and Finley would say, oh, it's not going very good. I'm not doing very well. And awful in Latin and so forth. And, Merton would say, well, don't worry, it won't last. 
sometimes Finley would go in to see Merton and Merton would say, well, how's it going? And Finley would say, it's great. I'm really getting the hang of this. And Merton would say, don't worry, it won't last. <laughs> what I myself have learned over the years to say to people in the face of their tsunami of grief and loss is this won't always be this way, but it is this way right now. And to acknowledge that instead of denying that it's happening. I have likely not had many original theological thoughts in my entire life because I have luckily ridden on the back of so many great people for reasons that are not part of this talk. I started reading uh, Paul Tillich when I was 15 um, and got a lot of information about God and everything from that. But um, here's an original thought of mine. One of the most healing forces in the world is another human being who can listen to you with patience and love and respond with what his or her faith directs at the moment. Genuine suffering, honestly shared, truly heard, not fixed, is grace. I'm going to copyright that. So please never say to somebody when life has fallen in on them, I know exactly what you're going through. You don't. And that isn't helpful. So what sense do we make of the harm and hurt in the world? Well, I think that it would be helpful just to give up on the notion that there is an all-powerful, all-loving God who can fix things. Now, hang on. Don't get up and leave yet. Hear me out about all of this. But it's not helpful to say, if God is all-powerful and if God is all-loving, then how could there be the Holocaust? Or how could there be racial discrimination? Or how could there be the murder of school children in Uvalde? Or the person who is committed to love me forever, how could that person have an affair? Etc. Etc. So people who believe that God is omnipotent really get angry at God for not exerting God's power to help them out of a special need. And I think the, God, the fact that God is all-powerful may be more ingrained into our DNA than the belief that God is an old white guy in the sky, a wise person. And I think one of the reasons for this is that Christian worship is full from start to last with affirmations that God is powerful. Those of you who attend worship across the plaza, and if you don't, you should, or you're going to go to hell when you die. <laughs> I like a little direct evangelism right there. You look at the hymn sometime, or if Jeff is not preaching an interesting sermon, just flip through the hymnal and look at how many hymns ascribe all power and majesty and glory to God. And every Sunday, every Christian in a liturgical church, Greek, Roman, Christian, whatever, will stand and say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. We, it's just in our DNA. We say it every Sunday. We get it ingrained. Um, so... It's not helpful. Now, this may come as a shock to you, but Christian scripture does not teach that God is all-powerful. There is no passage anywhere in the Bible that says God controls. Now, I know this is not a graduate seminar in biblical theology, but words in the Bible that have been translated almighty or mistranslations. And that's because the Hebrew went into a Latin version and then into a Greek version and then into an English version. I'll give you an example of that later in class today. But there is no word in the, in the Hebrew or Christian scripture that says that God is almighty. Not once does Jesus ever ascribe to God the notion that God is all-powerful and that God can do anything. 
The very earliest biblical descriptions of God are of a God who nourishes, a God who protects, like a good parent. Now, many of you in this room are parents, and you aspire to be a good parent. And you know that no matter how much you love your child or children, you cannot protect them from everything. So it is with God. We children can make all sorts of self-destructive decisions along the way that nobody can interfere with. Omnipotence is not in the New Testament, but it's ingrained in our hearts and minds. And um, rather than give up on the belief, a lot of people just play the mystery card. Well, we don't understand it, but, or the... We'll understand it later, ploy. When you die and go to heaven. So we qualify. It's just what we do. We human beings qualify things in the world all the, all the time. You know, she's the nicest person you could ever meet after she's had her coffee. <laughs> or you should ask Cheryl. She knows everything. Well, nobody knows everything. But we qualify, we exaggerate, we do this, and we have this tendency to talk this way about God. So here's my affirmation. God does not exist. No lightning bolt yet. But God is. Now, I'm going to introduce you to two theological words today. One you've heard, likely, and one you've not heard, ever. I'm guaranteeing, almost. The first word I want to introduce to you is on the screen. It's theodicy. And that word means, um, if God is all-powerful, why do bad things happen? And theodicy is a discipline in theology that we use to explain why bad things happen. Many, many years ago, when I was in seminary, I read a book by an English preacher, theologian. His name is Leslie Weatherhead, called The Christian Agnostic. And that book really was helpful to me because I was the person with the doubts and wondering all this sort of thing. And then I found that Weatherhead had another book, which has been so popular that many of you in this room may have read it. It's called The Will of God. Um, I have not read this book in 50 years, but what I'm gonna say today is based on my memory of reading this book. These are my words, but I wanna give Weatherhead the credit for heading me in this direction. Now, there have been a couple of other books written about the will of God. Well, a couple. There have been hundreds of books written about the will of God. One of them that probably many of you have read was a book written by Rabbi Kushner years ago called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People. Hated that book because the title implies they're good people. They're not. They're just people. Jesus said the rain falls on the good and the bad, the righteous and the unrighteous, right? This is a, the, the, the title of, of Kushner's book was like making a deal with God. If I'm good, then you owe me. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. However, as my seminary professor said, the just get wetter because the unjust have stolen their umbrellas. Uh, you do a search on Amazon of why do bad things happen to good people and you'll find a dozen books by that title. Uh, Jim Hollis, um, the union analyst that I love so much, um, he uh, wrote a book called Why Do Good People Do Bad Things? That's kind of helpful to know something about. Um, I also want to be clear that nothing that Weatherhead says or I say is going to make anybody feel better about some loss or pain that they've endured. This is just about a realistic look 
at, at why things happen. So one of the realistic things we know about the energy field in which we live, and I talked about this two weeks ago when I talked about giving God a makeover, is that things constantly change. As Merton indicated to Finley, if things are good, wait, they'll change, then they won't be. If they're bad, wait, and they'll change, and, and they would be. N nothing left. And in the talk that I did two weeks ago, I illustrated this by talking about Copernicus, Freud, and Darwin. Those three things that gave a shock, an ontological shock to human consciousness. I could have added scores more. There was a time when human illness, its causes and cures were mysterious. And they were subject to incredible superstition and ignorance. Until a guy named Pasteur, known for his discoveries of the principles of vaccination and pasteurization, came about, made a huge change. And then a guy named Lister, who gave his name to the mouthwash, Listerine, discovered that if surgeons washed their hands and sterilized their instruments before surgery, people would stop dying of infection. That's an evolution in the way that we understand things. Now, more often than not, when these new insights were introduced into the human population, they were resisted, sometimes violently. I do not want violence today with these new ideas, okay? We'll, we'll tough it out. So as we have an evolving understanding of God and ourselves, we're gonna be invited to put earlier understandings aside and let them die. Every spiritual teacher that I know anything about talks about the importance of death in the process of spiritual growth or the process of letting go in the process of spiritual growth. Uh, there's no way to move forward without that. So when one way of life comes to an end, another likely does not begin immediately. There's always a space. Sometimes it's very dark and scary before something new comes about. So a marriage of 20 years comes to an end, and it's not all bright and sunshine the next day. There's a period of transition and making sense of things until there's new life. And this period in the middle, this transition period, can be very dark and scary. But it makes no sense, I think, to have a religious faith or a spiritual practice that can't deal with tragedy. And this is true because there is likely nothing that influences the quality of our lives uh, any more than the tragedy that comes to us and what we do about it. So, some people, when tragedy happens, they've been taught to say, well, this is all for the best. If you go down the street to Texas Children's Hospital, you'll have a hard time selling that point of view. There are plenty of situations where nobody gets anything good out of it. Some hold it that tragedy happens to us to make us stronger, to help us be more courageous. I have seen people have a tragedy occur to them where they came out weaker on the other side, not stronger. Life didn't get put back together. I've seen people say, well, God gives us no more than we can bear. That's theological hogwash. Just this week, a dear friend of mine had a good friend of his son put a gun to his head and blow his brains out. You don't recover from that sort of tragedy. Besides, God didn't give anybody that to bear. So the belief that harm and hurt come to us as a punishment for some past deed, that's part of our DNA too. Every person in this room, every person in this room has said, at some point in your life, when some tragedy befell you, great or small, I don't know what I did to deserve this. Right? We all have been there. We all know that, that line. 
There's also not a person in this room that doesn't know tragedy and loss. And as I, I said, if you haven't, um, just wait. You will. As a person and as a pastor, I have walked through some of the most agonizing moments with people you can imagine. And it is out of these experiences that I have forged these tentative conclusions that I want to share with you, influenced by my reading years ago, Leslie Weatherhead's little book, Why Is There Tragedy in the World? Why do harm and hurt come to us? And the first answer I want to offer is that of statistical probability. The world is composed of many things that react in many ways. Tectonic plates, germs, viruses, they're all part of the created order. The Earth's tectonic plates sometimes move in ways that cause huge disasters in the outer world, as uh, recently happened in Syria and Turkey, where the count has stopped now at more than 6,000 people who were killed in that tragedy. I am told that it's just a matter of time before there's going to be such a quake on the northeast, north east part of the United States, northwest part of the United States. And that part of the United States will just go into the ocean. Now, well, nobody knows when, but it, it is a statistical probability that it will happen sometime. It's not God's doing. When I was a very young child, I had pneumonia, and um, there was no penicillin at the time, just dinosaurs. <laughs> and um, my family was told by the family doctor who made house calls. Those of you who are doctors here, take note. The doctor came to my ho our house and told my parents that I would likely not live through the night. Um, in case you're not aware, I did. But <laughs> Sometime later, I got pneumonia again, and this time, I got a shot of penicillin. And a penicillin cured it. Now, I understand that there's some people who, if they get a shot of penicillin, it kills them. They're allergic to it. Now, shall we say that it is the will of God in both cases? That some people get penicillin and cured, and some people get penicillin and die? Or doesn't it make more sense to say it is a statistical probability that some people will be allergic to and killed by penicillin while others are healed by it? A certain number of people will be affected by tragedy this year. You maybe in that number. Now this may sound like a very cold way of looking at things, but I contend it's a very honest way and that this is the kind of truth that sets us free. And no, when tragedy falls one of your friends, don't say, oh, it's statistical probability. That's not helpful. <laughs> a second reason I would give for harm and hurt has to do with human limitation. 50, 45 years ago or so, I had a best friend, Fred, here, and Fred and I had lunch together every week. He was also a minister and a psychologist, and uh, Fred had a condition known as coronary artery disease, which led him to, into congestive heart failure, which led him from time to time to have to go into the hospital for emergency care. And every time he would come out of the hospital, he would be in a weakened state. And so this continued, and this continued, this repetitive pattern until um, he died of congestive heart failure. Um, they tried a open heart procedure, but that procedure was in its infancy at the time, and Fred died, lived about seven days after having that procedure, and then, then he died. I know another guy who, through sheer luck, was diagnosed with coronary artery disease. The day of the diagnosis, he was told that he would have to have 
open heart surgery. Four days later, he had quadruple bypass surgery. And the day after that, with pain and difficulty, he was up walking, and today he is teaching this class. Now, is God's will regarding coronary artery disease different now than it was 40 years ago? I think not. Some of us grew up with a scourge called polio. My parents were terrified of polio. A girl I fell madly in love with in the first grade. She was way too old for me. She was in the fourth grade. Her name was Jacqueline. It was a beautiful name. Beautiful girl, long hair. She got polio. And she ended up in an iron lung machine. I remember going to visit her when she was in an iron lung machine. And she died. And then something came along called the Salk and the Sabine vaccine. Prior to that, polio victims were not victims of God's will. Human limitation was. We hadn't figured that one out yet. And a third reason I would offer you about the reason for harm and hurt is that we're the victims sometimes of what's called human evil. Now, Jim Finley refers to these people as human beings whose hearts are not yet capable of seeing and loving. Children are abducted. Young, children are, young people are exploited with drugs. People are murdered. People are sex trafficked. People are victimized in some way because of this lack of seeing and compassion. Not the will of God. When I was in the seminary, the second appointment that I had as a church, the first one that had a parsonage, word came to me a few weeks after we had moved into the parsonage that there had been a death of a child in the community. I was the only resident pastor in the community, small community, northeast of Dallas. And I felt that as the only resident pastor, I should go visit the family, which I did. And what I found when I arrived at their house was a mentally defective mother and father who had allowed their fourth child, a nine-week-old baby girl, to die of starvation. Now, this is in the shadows of the skyscrapers and the medical expertise of Dallas, Texas. Two other children, I found out later, had been taken from the family earlier by Child Protective Services. Uh, that was before this family had moved to our community. They did not know what to do. I was an infant in ministry. I didn't know what to do either. But somehow I arranged, because I was too ignorant to know I couldn't do what I did, to get the body from the morgue at Parkland Hospital in Dallas. I talked a funeral home into giving us a funeral service for this child. And um, we cut through a bunch of red tape now looking back on that. And uh, for physiological reasons, as soon as we got the body, we had to have the funeral in the cemetery that also donated a small little lot for the plot for this baby to have the service, the headlights of the car illuminating the place where the body would be buried. Her name was Donna Sue Horn. My first child had just been born, and so I, I, I uh, one of the things is in my psychology work, I've never, ever, ever, ever been able to identify with. I, I can identify with committing murder, theft, arson, a lot of other things, but child abuse, can't get there. So I was just stunned, heartbroken, and everything about the death of this little girl. And one of the guys in the church who had helped me run the course to get the body and have the funeral and everything was saying to me, I remember standing out in front of the, the house, and he said, Preacher, this is all right. What kind of life would that little girl have had with these people? This was in God's hands. He was doing that little girl a favor. That's barbaric to think that it is God.
God's will to write on any death certificate Mount Teresa. That's barbaric, but it happens. It happens in this town, in this city, close to this church. It happens more than any of us want to know. So our theological understandings about God and self have got to change. In light of the new insights we are gaining about the energy field in which we're living. And this rethinking is called reconstructive theology. That's not the new word I want to introduce. What's a good word? For example, I'll give you an example of reconstructive theology. This may come as a surprise to you. But in Jewish theology, there was no belief in resurrection from the dead for a long, long time. One of the reasons for this is that the Jews wanted to differentiate themselves from the surrounding religions of the tribes around them, and they all believed in afterlife and everything, so the Jews rejected that. There was no afterlife until there was a thing called the Maccabean Revolution in which so many Jewish men were slaughtered that the rabbis sitting around said, this can't be just. This, this can't be the end of things. There's got to be something else. God's got to deal with this. And so they came up with the notion. They, re, they invented the idea of resurrection. And it wasn't a resurrection of an individual soul mortality like the Christians borrowed from the Greeks. This is a resurrection of a people. A people would come back to life. This is what the Jewish religion began to teach its people. Reconstructive theology. Not a bad thing. Uh, reconstructive theology is in the Jewish DNA. I wish it were in ours. Um, most of you remember the story of Joseph in the scripture. You know the guy with the coat of many colors? Now again, the coat of many colors is a biblical mistranslation. That is not what the Bible says. But when the Bible was, what the Bible literally says is that Joseph's father gave him a coat with long sleeves. That's what it says. But when they translated into the King James Version, every, every guy in England had a coat with long sleeves, so that didn't differentiate it, so they thought, well, Joseph had a coat of many colors. And that's what we've all believed all these years. It ain't in the Bible. That may be the one thing people take from this class today, Bill. <laughs> Joseph was a guy, wasn't he? You know the Joseph story? He antagonized his brothers. <clears throat> he refused to work in the fields that they did. He pranced around in his fancy clothes. He was his father's favorite child, and he knew it, and he showed it off, didn't have to work in the field. He related to his brothers. He said, you know, someday I'm going to be a big shot, and you guys are going to bow down and worship me. And, and um, he was such a brat that his brothers decided to kill him. Now, don't be hard on him because you've got relatives you thought about <laughs> getting rid of yourself. And they, one of the brothers uh, said, no, we can't kill him. So they sold him into slavery. And, and he went to Egypt and he rose up into Egypt in Pharaoh's house and became a really, really powerful person in Pharaoh's house. So years later, there's a famine that strikes the land where his brothers lived, and they have to go to Egypt to buy grain. But a lot of time has passed, so they are ushered in this room where this guy that they do not know is their brother is going to sell them this grain. And so he toys with them for a while. You read the story. It's a great story. Toys about their baby brother Benjamin and all this sort of stuff and everything. And then later he says... I'm Joseph, ta-da, and they go, oh, my God, what in the world is he going to do to us because of what we did to him? That's the way we think. <clears throat> this woman dies and goes to heaven. This is not my notes. 
and, and when she gets to heaven, she sees all the loved ones and everything, and she's eager to get in, and she goes up to St. Peter, and she says, I, I, want, I want to come in, and St. Peter says, oh, it's easy. All you have to do is answer a question uh, or spell a word, and, and she said, uh, what is it? And he said, love, and she said, I'll be eating. And he said, come on in. So she goes in, and she's enjoying bliss. If you think about heaven as a gated community, it's going to problem, give you a problem, but anyway. A few years later, um, Peter comes to her and says, hey, I need to take a break. Would you mind the gate for me? And she said, I'd be happy to. And so she goes to the gate, and she hadn't been there very long until her husband shows up. And she said, good grief, I didn't expect you here. He said, yes, I, I, I'm here. And she said, well, what's happened to you? What? Since I last saw you, he said, well, you know that cute nurse that took care of you when you were ill? She and I got married. Uh -huh. And then I won the lottery, uh -huh. and, and, and uh, we tore down our dream house that you and I built and built a big mansion, and we've really enjoyed that. Uh -huh. And then uh, we went traveling all over the world like you and I wanted to do but never could afford to do. Uh -huh. And we, I was water skiing on Lake Como in Italy and fell off the boat, and the water ski hit me in the head, and that's why I'm here. And she said, uh-huh. He said, can I come in? She said, sure. You just got to spell a word. He said, okay, what is it? And she said, Czechoslovakia. <laughs> We're that way. But Joseph said, look, take it easy. Just relax. It was not you who sent me here. It was God. God sent me here so that I might be able to provide food for my family during this period of famine. It was not you. It was the will of God. Now, actually, given this schema of limitation and human evil and all that, it was human evil that put Joseph where he was, all the way around. He was a jerk. But he had so responded to the situation that he was in that eventually he could say to his brothers, don't worry about it. I have found the healing side of this thing. So here's the word I want to give you from a theologian you have not heard of. His name is Thomas Ord. He is a theologian, philosopher, multidisciplinary scholar who directs a doctoral program at North Gwynn Theological Seminary. He has written at least a dozen scholarly works. He's what we call a process theologian. And, and one of his books uh, is a book titled God Can't, How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse, and Other Big Evils. Folks, I'm not recommending this book, which means that you will probably buy it. But if you do, just be aware, this is a very difficult book to read. This is a scholarly book. There are scores of footnotes. Ord really is a scholar and documents his work very well. He's also written a book called The Death of Omnipotence, which I would also say is a difficult book to read. I would like you to know that what I say in here is based on the best scholarship that I can find. So the word that Ord offers for understanding God's primary characteristic is this word, A-M-I-P-O-T-E-N-T. -E and the word is from two Latin words, the word ami, which is the word that we get amigo, uh, amicable, amity from. The word means in Latin, love. And the second Latin word is uh, the word potent, which is the word that we get words like potential and potent from. And it's pronounced, uh, the A-M as in Amsterdam, the I as in it, and the potence part is in moment. And uh, it's the new word. It takes the place of omnipotence. Get it in your head. Divine love, like the best of human love, 
wants and longs for those we love to thrive, to flourish. But like our love, it doesn't control and it can't protect. God wills all creation to do what promotes overall well-being, as in the quote from the very beginning of our time today, for this and us to thrive. But God's creatures, like our own children, may or may not cooperate with this desire. God does not will the son in the parable of the prodigal son to wish his dead father, to wish his father dead so that he can get the money and leave home. But God waits with open arms and aching heart for the return of the wayward child. God does not will the bandits to beat almost to death the man on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. But God's love is seen in the behavior of the despised Samaritan who reaches out to heal. In the Christian story, I hope that as a result of our being together over these years and going forward, that one of the things that you would gain if you choose to be Christian and involve yourself in the Christian liturgy, which I think is so valuable, I hope that you look at the cross and you don't say, oh, look what Jesus did for me. That is so narcissistic and wrong. Look at the cross and say, look what an evil system did to a just human being. Further, look deeper at that symbol and see that death doesn't have the last word. There may be that period between Good Friday and Easter, but it's always Easter. That's part of the evolutionary process, new birth, again and again and again and again, in your life and our life together on the planet. Life has the last word. Truth has the last word. Freedom has the last word. Justice has the last word. Our faith remains. God is love. And we are created in the image and likeness of this love. We may be faithful to this sacred image, or we may not. That choice is ours. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next Sunday. Thank you. Thank you.